the percent of loans in foreclosure are down for the first time since early 2006. Welcome to NPR's Planet Money. Today is Friday, August 27th, and that was Jay Brinkman, Chief Economist of the Mortgage Brokers Association at the top. I'm Adam Davidson, and this is, for me anyway, a very special podcast. We're going to bring you the big story we've been working on for a very long time with the guys at ProPublica, Jesse Isinger and Jake Bernstein. On the show today, Jake, Jesse, and I bring you Inside the Sausage Factory. It's a exploration of what was happening inside Wall Street banks that we think prolonged and worsened the financial crisis. This story is part of a series we're working on with ProPublica. The first story was about a hedge fund named Magnetar that made millions of dollars when the housing market collapsed. Alex Bloomberg did that story on This American Life and loyal Planet Money followers might remember this gem from that story. We're gonna bet against the American dream. We're gonna be on the winning team. Purchase risky debt on a massive scale. Then place a bet that the debt will fail. Hundreds of millions. I'm very excited to say that today's story will also feature not only an in depth look at the inner workings of Wall Street, but a special musical performance. Although this one is not a show tune, it's more like a driving rock song featuring, for the first time ever, as far as I know, the song stylings, the actual singing of Lloyd Blankfein, head of Goldman Sachs, Brian Moynihan, head of Bank of America, and Robert Rubin, former Treasury Secretary and chair of Citigroup. That's courtesy of the auto-tune The News Guys, who we worked with on that. It's a very fun song. So stay tuned to the end. But first, the Planet Money indicator. Jacob Goldstein, what do you have for us? Adam, for you today, I have 1.6%. That's how much the nation's economy grew in the second quarter of this year, according to government figures out this morning. Right. Second quarter, April, May and June of this year. They annualized the rate. Now, 1.6 percent, Jacob, of course, is growth. Growth, you know, at a time of huge unemployment, of economic slowdown, of economic pain and misery across the nation. You think growth? Okay, that's better than not growing. Well, it's not enough growth in short, right? I mean, unemployment is very high, uh, which is probably the biggest, clearest problem in the economy right now. To get unemployment down, GDP growth really needs to be much bigger than this. It needs to be twice as high or more. Uh, and what's more, th this, this new estimate of GDP growth, it's even lower than what the government came out with just a month ago. A month ago, they said, you know, we think GDP growth in the second quarter of this year was 2.4%. But what's happened since then, is as more figures have come in, and we've seen this day after day, week after week, lots of bad indicators. So there's been this sort of mounting sense that the recovery is fading and that we're nowhere near the growth rate we need to be at. Yeah, it's important to remember every month there are new people in the economy, new immigrants, new people graduating high school, coming back into the workforce after having kids, whatever it might be. So you need GDP to grow at well above 1% just to effectively feel like there's economic growth to the actual people living this economy. So 1.6% for most people in America will not feel like growth at all. We'll be monitoring all the data as it comes in and trying to help our listeners understand what's happening with this economy. Thank you, Jacob. Thanks, Adam. All right. I am really excited to get into the meat of today's podcast, because it has been 13 months in the coming. 
Uh, I'm sitting here with Jesse Isinger from ProPublica and Jake Bernstein from ProPublica. Hi, guys. Hey, Adam. How are you? So today we are actually going to explain how some banks on Wall Street took actions that made the crisis much worse, the financial crisis much worse than it could have been. And I want to explain how we got to this moment. When Alex and I, two, three years ago, were working on the giant pool of money and our early stuff on the housing and financial crisis, we were really focused on this idea that basically the whole country, maybe the whole world was caught up in this credit bubble. And I think that's certainly a big part of the story. But it, but we always had this suspicion, this strong feeling that not everyone is equally to blame. Not everyone was equally active in this uh, credit bubble. And in fact, some folks on Wall Street were more aware of what was going on before the bubble burst and took actions to profit themselves that ultimately made the problem worse for us. And that's what we're going to explain today. We're going to explain how they did that. Right, guys? Yep. Yep. All right. The part of Wall Street we're talking about is uh, called a CDO desk or a CDO department. CDOs, collateralized debt obligations, we've talked about on this podcast an awful lot. Those are sort of the uber financial product of this financial crisis. These are the subprime back security stuff. So just to explain the characters here, you have the investment banks. Those you've heard of, Merrill Lynch, Citigroup, UBS, they're funding the CDOs. They have all these 27-year-olds figuring out how to create a CDO. And then they're selling that off in pieces to the customer. The customer might be a pension fund, a another bank, a smaller bank somewhere in the world, a central bank of a government. And then there's this CDO manager who's in between the two, making sure the whole thing is fair, is is just. Is that is that a way to think about it? The most important thing about a manager is that they are independent, independent of the bank. And their job is to pick the bonds that are going to go into the CDO. That is their only job. And they're supposed to do it well and independently. And up until May or so, sometime in 2006, Merrill Lynch, Citigroup, UBS, they can't sell this fast enough. Right. People are snapping it up all over the world, municipalities, pension funds. It's the hot product. And then our story really begins in the summer of 2006, four years ago, when there's a hitch. There's a serious problem in this money-making machine. What, what is that, Jake? Well, the hitch is that uh, the investors for the least attractive parts of these CDOs start to melt away. It becomes harder and harder to find them. They're going to Asia. They're going all over the world. But increasingly, they just cannot find investors for key parts of CDOs. And so summer 2006, CDO salespeople are hearing a word that they're not used to hearing. No. And wh why is that? Why are these investors all over the world saying, OK, I'll buy the best stuff you have, but I'm, I'm a little nervous about that other stuff? You know, it's a gradual process, but um, the first signs of trouble in the American housing market start around mid-06. Prices, uh, home prices start to fall and people start to uh, not make good on their mortgages. And so there are warning signs. In fact, we have one of these investors who started saying no around this time, Peter Noel from the Royal Bank of Scotland. There were a lot of things that were being relaxed 
on a credit perspective over that time as people wanted to push out more and more deals. Too many California mortgages, too low credit scores. All right. So summer 2006, these CDO desks, and we're talking about the leading banks on Wall Street. I know you guys look particularly at Merrill Lynch, at Citigroup, UBS. UBS, yeah. yeah. Those are the three. So I'm assuming that what they did was they said, wow, investors are not buying these subprime mortgage-related securities. They must know something is problematic here. Let's stop this subprime <laughs> mortgage madness. Let's look at this product and calm down. We're sure we're making millions of dollars in bonuses, but we're making it on, on a bubble, on a, on a fantasy. We have to tell the world, let's stop this madness. Is that what the banks did? Actually, Adam, you would assume wrong. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so <laughs> this is the moment they have a choice. They actually, they really do have a choice and they don't, they don't do it. Instead, they keep selling CDOs. And what's the choice? They, what can, could they have done? Well, the choice would be that they would have to take some losses. You know, they would have to say, you know, we can't get rid of uh, all of this inventory. We're going to have to write it down. We're going to have to admit that this is a bubble. It's not sustainable. We have to stop. We have to do something else. Um, but they don't do that. Uh, instead, what they do is they create investors for their product. They invent buyers of this product that they can't sell. And I got to be honest, like I, you guys have explained the story to me many times. I do <laughs> feel like I fundamentally understand it. But every time it gets to this point, I still my head hurts. They invent buyers. They create buyers. And the customers that they invent are, are essentially themselves. And I, I know that's a, a mind bender to think about. But what they do is they create new CDOs and those CDOs buy the old pieces of CDOs that they couldn't sell. So they actually take the old stuff and they put it into the new stuff. Yeah, I mean, we, we use the sausage metaphor in the piece. And essentially, if we go back to the sausage metaphor, they're taking the unsold bits of sausage, the, the end bits, if you'd like, that you can't, that no one wants, and they're shoving them into the new pieces of sausage. So I'm, I'm a sausage maker. People are buying some of my sausage, but they're not buying the nasty end bits. They're not buying the parts of it they don't want. And so I just shove that in the meat grinder, create new sausage, create new sausage. Now, I'm immediately picturing, you know, you do that once or twice. It's just a little bit of nasty end bit in with a sausage. You don't notice. But I do that enough times, and I'm making sausages that are nothing but sausage casings. Nothing. It's just nasty. And this is actually exactly what happens, Adam. In the beginning, in 2005, in the early years of the CDO business, uh, the recycled sausage is, is actually only about 5% of the entire deal. But over time, as they lose uh, customers and they need to put more of this stuff into the CDO, it becomes 30, 40% of the entire CDO. You're saying these CDOs are becoming 30, 40% made up of the junk nobody wanted. But you also said that there were these independent guys, these CDO managers, independent, trustworthy referees who are there to choose what goes into the CDO. Why would those independent, trusted, third-party referees take the junk nobody wants and create a new CDO made up, you know, 40% junk? And the answer, uh, Adam, is that the CDO managers were completely beholden to the banks. They were paid, uh, they earned fees 
uh, based on how many CDOs they managed. And since they were picked by the banks to manage the CDOs, uh, they depended on the banks for their business. So it was actually in their interest to take whatever the banks uh, uh, told them to take. Um, so in theory, you are independent of the investment bank. You don't technically work for the investment bank, but the investment bank completely controls the degree to which you get an easy million, two million, five million dollars a year in fees. It's up to the investment bank. So you want to keep the investment bank happy, presumably. Yeah, the, in the investment banks use their influence on the CDO managers uh, so that the CDO managers would take the stuff uh, that they couldn't sell. So this is how they create their own customers. They call the CDO manager and say, hey, you, you got to buy this stuff. No one else will buy it. You have to buy it. You got to pick this stuff for your next CDO. That's what they're saying. And Merrill did this most of all, um, but also City and UBS. As one rival uh, banker to Merrill told us, uh, the way it would work with CDO managers and Merrill was Merrill would tell them, uh, like Henry Ford once did, you can have any car in any color as long as it's black. So Merrill said, you can buy any CDO bond you want in the world. As long as it's a Merrill one. As long as it's a Merrill one. Now, how does this work as a business? Because don't they then have to sell these new CDOs to somebody? Well, this is the, this is the daisy chain. So each new CDO has new riskier, le less attractive parts that uh, it produces that they can't sell. And so they have to create a new CDO to buy those. And it goes on and on and on. And the complicated thing about this is that the banks are mostly behind purchasing most of the CDO. So the banks are retaining the risk of most of the CDO each time a new CDO is created. So the customer that's being screwed is the bank that's doing the screwing? Exactly. So it's really the CDO desk, which gets fees based on how much they sell, is screwing their employer. Yes, and this is why the banks uh, uh, imploded spectacularly when, uh, when the financial crisis hit and the music stopped. Individual bankers had the incentives to blow up their own institutions. And this is how they did it. At least one of the ways that they yeah, did it. This is how this they, is did, how it. they yeah. did it. So if this was just a story of an employee of a bank does something risky, does something maybe duplicitous, and the bank itself loses a lot of money. I mean, we hear those stories from time to time, right? The, you know, the, the trader in the trenches who does something and blows up the bank. That's not that big a deal for me if I don't work at Merrill Lynch, if I don't own Merrill Lynch stock, if I don't particularly care about Merrill Lynch. What, how, how can you connect what these guys did, you know, to, to our listeners, to the people who are just, you know, innocent bystanders? So, so what these activities do is they more than double the market. 2006, there's $226 billion worth of CDOs made. And lots of this is because CDOs are buying other CDOs. They're doing the daisy chain. And so when the financial crisis hits, the banks take nearly a trillion dollars of losses around the world. And over half of that, more than $500 billion, is due to CDOs. Now, um, let, let's make very clear... Uh, so these CDO department workers who orchestrated all of this, I mean, we're not saying that they knew that they were about to create the worst financial crisis in 70 years, right? I mean, what, what can we hold them sort of accountable for? Yeah, most of the people that we've talked to, no one expected 
that this was going to be the great financial uh, recession of our age. Um, what they uh, what they what they knew or should have known um, was that at a certain point, a key point in the market, uh, investors started to melt away, and this was their opportunity um, to reassess what they were doing. And instead, uh, they not only went forward, but uh, they doubled uh, the overall production of, of this stuff that they couldn't really find investors for. Yeah. And the, the higher-up executives should have known about this activity. They should have known the risks were, uh, that the banks were taking. Right. And it, we don't know for sure, but there's a good chance that the, you know, the CEOs, the heads of these investment banks had no idea any of this was going I on. I think it's so complex that uh, it's probably likely that they didn't understand it. But you know, they had plausible de- deniability. They didn't want to understand it. Well, because they were looking at their bottom line. They were looking at these huge bonuses, these huge fees, you know, this, these great earnings that the bank was posting every quarter, and they didn't want to stop it. And because the finance of, of CDOs and, and other financial products is so complicated, there's no clear graph that says, by the way, all those profits, you're the customer who's generating much right. of that All money. of that stuff was off the balance sheet. So if you were just looking at what was published uh, on your uh, in each quarter, you weren't going to see the risk you were taking. Of course, the great tragedy was that it wasn't really off the balance sheet. And as soon as the crisis hit, it all came pouring back onto the balance sheet. So I, I have to assume a fair number of our listeners are thinking what I'm thinking. Uh, why aren't these people in jail? I mean, they, they they certainly knew they were doing something funny. They nearly brought down the global economy. They caused me personally pain and every other American. What, what Are they going to jail? Well, the reality, Adam, is it's not entirely clear that this was illegal. Um, a lot of the stuff that, that was being done w- was disclosed in, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages of legalese and prospectuses. Um, it's, this is very hard to, to parse, and to, it was hard for the regulators to – I mean, they, they, they missed it. They didn't see it when it was happening, and it's hard for them to figure out what's, what, what happened afterwards. So this is, a, this is an open debate. The SEC has said that it is investigating 50 different CDO managers – uh, asset managers. Uh, we'll see what happens with those investigations. But the investment bankers themselves might be just off the hook. Well, I mean, there Next. are there are lawsuits, and uh, but it's it's possible that uh, yes, they might be off the hook. And they made record bonuses in two thousand six. At the end of two thousand six, and in two thousand seven. I mean, this is the thing that that that, that is. That is hard to swallow, which is that there was a hitch in the CDO business, but there was no hitch in bankers' bonuses. Now, for all of you who listen to this whole podcast, just to hear a funny song at the end, you are now going to be rewarded. We've got this special song that the Gregory Brothers, the comedians behind the awesome Auto-Tune, the news series, created for us. And basically what they do is they find actual audio of real newsmakers, in this case... As I said at the top, Lloyd Blankfein of Goldman Sachs, Brian Moynihan of Bank of America, and Robert Rubin, former Treasury Secretary and former chair of Citigroup. These are things that they actually said auto-tuned. Were you pulling money business while you were doing business with everyone's money on the line? Some of the activities we undertook contributed to prevailing all of the time. So did you know right then it would all come crashing in That something funky was cooking We didn't know it then or even today 
when it actually crossed over into bubble territory. So you didn't see it coming, you didn't see it coming, well did you see it coming, did anybody see it coming? No one involved in the housing system foresaw dramatic and rapid depreciation in home prices. No one. Lenders. Nobody. Bidding agencies. Anybody. Investors. Somebody. Insurers. Consumers. Regulators. Policymakers. So you didn't see it coming at all. And then when you look back, you always look back, and you look back, and you say, well, these were warning signs. And then when you look back, you always look back, and you look back, and you say, well, these were warning signs. They're not obvious at the time. They're only obvious in hindsight. They're not obvious at the time. They're only obvious in hindsight. So no one ever could have seen it coming at all. Well, you know, I'm not so sure about that. We have an awful lot on our blog today at npr.org slash money. We've got a link to the video, really awesome, that the Gregory Brothers did that goes along with that song. We've got a link to the ProPublica story, which you can also find at ProPublica.org. It goes into much greater detail into the mechanics of how Wall Street created false demand for these CDO products and worsened the financial crisis. Very special thanks to Jesse Isinger, Jake Bernstein, Eric Omansky, Paul Steiger, Dick Toffel, Steve Engelberg. It's really been amazing working with you guys, and I can't wait for the next part of this project. I also want to thank United Meat, the best butcher in Brooklyn, for letting me record their meat grinding and sausage making process for today's Morning Edition story. Please email your thoughts, comments, criticisms, enormous amounts of praise to planetmoney at npr.org. I'm Adam Davidson. Thank you for listening. <laughs>